live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Robbie Hirsch, to a brand new series. Firstly, about last week's, it was very well received that we read out the feedback. People found it very interesting to hear other people's thoughts, and it broadened their knowledge. And it's uh, always interesting to hear who's listening to them and from where. I think we should keep it to at the end of every series, just that we could collate all of them and and find the best ones. So we are doing a topic now that's very relevant to this time of year. We've only got, I believe, 30 shopping days to go. Depends if you shop on Shabbos. (laughs) Right. And we're going to be looking at the origins of Christianity over three weeks. Yes. So obviously, any time of year, this is a very important topic historically. However, it needs a couple of introductions. Firstly, it's important to understand that from a social or economic perspective, Judaism has no problem with Christian non-Jews. It's not a problem for me to be on very cordial terms with people who have a different belief to mine or to do business with them. But from the perspective of theology, it's very different because it is impossible for any two religions to both be right. Now, you know, in some circles, they speak of truth existing in all religions. Even if we accept that, it doesn't mean it cannot mean that the core of any two sets of beliefs are both true. For instance, when God uses the term loilom forever, in the Torah, as Judaism says it does for Shabbos observance, did God actually mean forever when he said forever? Or did God mean, well, maybe for a few hundred years and then I'll send my son and he'll change most of the five books beyond recognition? (laughs) You know, which of the two is it? It cannot be both simultaneously. Now, in the West, we tend to be snowed under by the concept of a Judeo-Christian ethic, which is essentially a fallacy. These ethics are basically not particular to any religion, but to Western morality in general. You know, if you look them up on the Internet, you'll find vague statements like um, uh, committed to common decency or a commitment to dignity of life which, by the way, once you get halachic, is totally untrue anyway, because there are very different opinions on end-of-life scenarios. You know, who do you save if the mother is giving birth and the birth is endangering her life? Catholicism and Judaism have literally opposite conclusions on the matter. Right, but both religions do adopt a certain general ideas in common. Even if we agree to that, and that is, let's say, the Judeo-Christian ethic... When we talk about dogma, when we talk about beliefs at that point, we need to understand, as I said, that the core ideas of any religion are contradictory to all others. But what you mentioned before about the West, these are relatively new ideas that religion has been incredibly diluted over the centuries. Yeah. 
Okay, and therefore even more so, uh, this is true if you go back in time, but it's equally true today philosophically. So, you know, try this one out. Is the founder of Christianity God or not? And possibly just a naughty boy. (laughs) It's quite a fundamental question. You cannot believe in Christianity and believe he is not God, and you cannot believe in Judaism and believe he is God. What about Jews for J? Well... Actually, as I've, I have enjoyed pointing out to dozens of them over the years, they are either Jews or for J. If they don't believe in kosher, tefillin, Yom Kippur, then they aren't a religious movement promoting Jews. It's Jews for nothing. Now, the Western world doesn't like excluding anybody. You mentioned, you know, diluting it, especially places like campus. There is no absolute truth. There is no absolute definition of nearly anything, which is how the this sort of nebulous ethic was composed in the 20th century in the first place. But religion doesn't work that way ever. You cannot have two religions both being true. It's possible that neither of them are true, but never both. Although I reiterate that non-Jewish Christians should continue their belief system. And by all means, I can lend them my lawnmower, not without going into detail, you know, halachically, shituf is potentially mutter for a non-Jew, according to Toysavus. Christianity nowadays might not be idolatrous for a non-Jew. There's a Ramah and a Neide Behuda, whatever. But for a Jew... The belief in Christianity is sheker. It's a lie. You need to know that in this, as you put it, vague Western culture in which we live, you know, for for the people in the East or the Muslims have far less problem with this idea of absolutes. So that's one introduction. Secondly, what are we going to call him? You might notice that I have avoided doing so until now. The Posuk tells us, V'shem Elohim Acherim Loisaskiru which, amongst other things, means you may not mention the name of idolatrous gods. And at this point, you would have a problem mentioning the name of one of your favorite sports brands, Nike, who is the Greek goddess of victory, or the name of the city which used to be called Bombay. So, the Gemara tells us that any idol mentioned in the Torah may be said, Balpoir, for instance. The Urim explains that this is because these idols no longer exist, so their names no longer have idolatrous connotation, uh, similar to the concept of Bittel that you come across in the fourth chapter of Mishnah in Avodah Now, along these lines, Tosfos and Hagos Maimonis rule that the only names that are forbidden are ones that refer to the deity as being divine, but a, a personal name is allowed, which is why, based on this, says the Vilna Gon, that saying Yeshu, which is the Aramaic or Talmudic term of Jesus, is fine, because that is simply his given name, but not the divine name, and therefore you find the name mentioned several times in the, in the Gemara, in the Talmud, without there being a problem of mentioning it. You know, and there are plenty of people in South America called Jesus, and I assume they don't believe they are God. And Bombay? I do not say the current modern-day term because 
in its modern version, it refers to an actively worshipped goddess by millions, admittedly with a slightly longer name. So, you know, ask your local Orthodox rabbi for more on that. Right. So I'm assuming you're referencing to, although we can say Jesus halachically, Mm -hmm. it's his second name that we have an issue with. So the word Christos means anointed. Translate that into Hebrew. That is the word Moshiach. Now, in the 21st century, the term Moshiach is what is called eschatological, meaning it has end of time, end of days connotations to do with the final revelation. Yeah, I thought it meant the Redeemer. Right. Not at the time. If you look in Tanakh, the term Moshiach, anointed, refers to a king, any king, on occasion a non-Jewish king, in Yeshaya. In chapter 45, HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives a message to Kairish Meshichi, my anointed one, Cyrus, who was the king of the Persians. It simply means a king. It doesn't have a religious meaning. And therefore, technically, those two words even put together mean Yeshu, the king, except that after he died, that term now means king in a divine sense. Just like Lahavdil, when we say Ovinu Malkenu. And therefore, that's the problem. Saying only the first is fine. Um, so, what we will do is we will refer to him only by that and the historical name, the one he really had, which is Yeshu. Okay. With that in mind, let's deal with numbers. There are 8 billion people in the world. You've done your homework. Yes. <laughs> of those, 2.3 billion are Christian. And 1.2 billion are Catholic, at least, which is the largest denomination in Christianity. There are about a billion, 500,000 Muslims in the world. So that is 50% of the world population between those two religions. And there are about 14 million Jews. So from the perspective of the numbers game, well, we lost that one a long time ago. If we're going to predicate belief purely on who's got more, we are not even a minority. We are an insignificant digit in terms of the world's population. It reminds me of that famous story, I believe, Rabionis and Ibershitz, when asked by... Rove, why don't you follow the majority? Why don't you follow the majority? Yes. Okay, so, Rabbi Hirsch, how did everything start? I want to hear from the beginning. Okay, in the beginning, God created. So, um, <laughs> now, I am only going to use Christian sources or sources that Christians accept, like Tanakh, but no Jewish commentaries, simply because I do not need to. As you will see, the history is so revealing and obvious. Okay. He is Jewish, obviously. He's born a Jew in a Jewish land at a time where the Second Temple stands in Jerusalem. All his peers are Jewish. He was circumcised, religious. People perhaps don't realize or think of him as putting on tefillin every day, keeping meat and milk separate. But that was his life. And obviously, all his disciples were Jewish. And they weren't called Paul and James and Matthew and Thomas, nor by any Latin names, nor even Greek names, at least in most cases. James was Yaakov, Peter was Shimon, John was Yechanan. You know, let's get real here. This is first century Eretz Yisrael. <laughs> and his disciples were far more Jewishly religious than 90% of the Jews alive today. And in fact, 
all Christians during the initial era were Jewish and Jewishly aware. So when does it start? It starts around 2000 years ago. Do you not mean 2023 years ago? Uh, no, I definitely don't. Uh, <laughs> the millennium celebrations were off date wise. Ask the most orthodox Christian historian you can come across, and they will tell you that he was definitely not born in the year minus one, plus one, whichever that year would be. He was somewhere between minus four and minus six. Just for our listeners to describe the two ways of referring to historical dates, Christians talk of BC, which means before Christos, whereas non-Christians use the term BCE, which means before Common Era. After the Common Era, in Christianity, it's called AD, which means Anno Domini, the year of my Lord, which clearly we don't agree with, whereas non-Christians refer to it as CE, Common Era. And here's me thinking I caught you out. Not yet. <laughs> Soon. He was born into a country controlled by Rome. From 63 BCE onwards, Pompeii, eventually Julius Caesar, Augustus, they ruled the Middle East as part of the Roman Empire. And what they would do is reward generals, people who had waged successful campaigns with the gift of province, an area. For a number of years, you could be the governor, the local ruler, until you retire to your villa and your, you know, your Senate seat in, in Rome. And essentially, this reward is a get-rich-quick scheme, because as the ruler, you're in charge of taxation. And the nation that was under your rule is forced to contribute. Why is this relevant? Because to the ruler... It didn't matter what religion you are. The idea of monotheism was unique. Jews were the only ones at the time. It was actually weird, but no one cared. 2,000 years ago, people in Eretz Israel were not persecuted for their religion. The rulers themselves didn't have any cohesion of beliefs. So people would not have been taken to task for beliefs that they were teaching. So he could have preached till the cows came home and no one would have killed him or even bothered about him. And that is not the reason for his death. What was the reason? We'll get there. So... Bearing in mind, if he's born around the Common Era, 70 years afterwards, the Second Temple is destroyed. And even though the majority of the Jews were not living in Eretz Yisrael during the Second Temple period, there were nevertheless tens of thousands of Jews living there. Now, what time of year was he born? One thing's for sure. For at least the first 300 years after his death, it was not celebrated on the 25th of December. In the book of Luke, one of the four Gospels, in chapter 2, we are told that at his birth, the shepherds were living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. That didn't happen in the winter. And around 200 CE, Clement of Alexandria wrote, and I quote, There are those who say that it took place in May. Others say that he was born in April. And the Greek word for field, sleeping out in the fields, is agros, which refers to a field that's cultivated for agriculture. So shepherds 
were never allowed in those fields during the spring or the summer because of the crop. Therefore, it must mean autumn, not April, not May, but definitely not the 25th of December. Don't tell me that Coca-Cola, as well as making the image of Santa, also made up the date. We'll get there. No, it was made up earlier than that, but nowhere near his life or death. Okay, the New Testament, so-called, the first four books, which are Mark, Matthew, Luke and John, describe his life. They don't all start at the same point, they don't all end at the same point, and they don't all contain the same episodes. But between them, all of his life is covered. In the first book, Matthew, Mary, well, Miriam, right? She wasn't called Mary, was betrothed to Joseph. Betrothed doesn't mean engaged, it means kiddushin which requires a proper bill of divorce, a get, if it's broken up, even though the two are not yet allowed to live together. But in temple times, in Talmudic times, there could be a 12-month gap between Kiddushin and Nisun, betrothal and wedding, although nowadays we run the one into the other. She is found to be with child. I'm not making this up. I will quote to you from Matthew. This is how the birth of J.C. came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. This is a quote from the very beginning of the New Testament, meaning he thought she'd committed adultery. Now, there are no witnesses, so she's not going to be put to death, but she is pregnant and it's not from him. So he wants to divorce her. And, you know, an angel comes, apparently, and says, don't worry, she is pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Okay. Now, it's possible that some of our listeners will have heard the term Yoshki Pondrix. Yoshki, the easy one, Pondrix. This term comes from the fact that his father was a Roman soldier called Pandira. Ben Pandira, who says the Tosefta. And I, I always thought it was just a substitute, like silly name instead of saying. No. no, no. Right. So that's how she became pregnant. And at the time of his birth and over the next 20, 30 years, there are various Jewish sects that come into being. Orthodox, non-Orthodox, the Essenes, the Sadducees, the Hellenists, the Bandits, the Pirushim. Some of them had been around for a couple of hundred years during the Second Temple, and they all have varying agendas. Now, remember, the Temple is destroyed because of baseless hatred, and this is the last few decades of that unfolding. So it's a, so to speak, very crowded marketplace, and it's a very unstable country. The Mishnah, last chapter of Sota, tells us that murder increased, robbery increased. It's chaos. Right. And the seeds of rebellion are in the air because the Romans oppressed the Jews politically. And they just escaped the rule of Herod, who was a, a tyrant and a, a murderer of Jews on a major scale. And he wasn't Jewish himself. He was an Idumean. So Israel had its fair share of rebellions. I mean, Josephus, for example, he was a rebel who was not backed by the majority of Jews, and, and almost all of those who fought against the Romans with him were killed by the Romans. He just manages to sort of, you know, get his way out of it. And the Romans cannot afford a single rebellion in their entire empire to be successful. 
they can't afford any local uprising because the Roman army isn't big enough to police the enormous empire that they were occupying from from Britain all the way to the Middle East and all of North Africa. There is no way they could keep it under control other than by being utterly ruthless if there's any shadow of suspicion of a rebellion. And, you know, there's no trials. Anyone who might be involved, anybody who gave shelter to those involved, they just killed them. Now, Yeshu eventually goes from the Galil, which was a hotbed of political rebellion, to Jerusalem, bringing the idea to the Jewish people at a time when many Jews will be in Jerusalem. Pesach time. Of course, Christianity claims nowadays that he didn't come with a political message, but a religious one, that he was a man of peace, and his message was that he was the Redeemer and the Son of God, which does not work for three reasons. The first is that there's a total lack of historical evidence from outsiders from the dozens and dozens of writers who lived at the time, you know, uh, Seneca and Petronius and Juvenal and Marshall and Plutarch and, and Pliny the Younger and Tacitus and Apollonius. These writers describe the Druze, they describe the temple, they describe Herod, you know, whatever. None of them talk about him, essentially because he achieved nothing in his lifetime. And had his message continued, he would have achieved nothing after his lifetime. In fact, yeah, we're jumping the gun a little bit here, but Christianity only succeeded because they radically changed direction and message after his death, as they themselves admit openly. And I'll read you the passages. It's not up for debate. You know, ask any priest. That's why Christianity succeeded. So why was such an irrelevant man chosen as the poster boy? So we'll talk about it. But in his lifetime, it went nowhere. And therefore, the idea that his message was a man of peace teaching that he was the son of God, no historical evidence outside the New Testament. The far bigger problem in making that claim, that he was a religious leader, is not the lack of evidence. It's the impossibility thereof, the total lack of credibility. Meaning as follows. He's known in the Christian world nowadays for two things. He is the Redeemer, the Messiah, and he is the son of God. So he's the Messiah. But the temple still stands. You don't need a religious saviour. There's a Cain Godel, a Sanhedrin, Sages, Hillel, Shammai. You know, he comes, he says, hi, guys, I've come to redeem you, you know, take you out of exile. Um, we're not in exile. <laughs> Why would you need a redeemer? And you've got the famous passage, allegedly overturning of the tables of the money changers in the temple. That's not messianic. That's protesting corruption. That's, you know, Greenpeace. Now, there was one very obvious thing lacking at that time, and that was political power, independence, which many groups had attempted to, like, as we mentioned about Josephus, they'd attempted to do something about. There were Jewish anti-Roman rebellions, and history is very clear about that. But being a redeemer before the temple is, is destroyed... I mean, you can be the king of the Jews, Rex Judeus, as political. And then the second part of the claim, more importantly, is sort of like apparently he told everyone in Eretz Israel that he was the son of God. If he would have made that claim in Judea of 23 CE, 2000 years ago, right? No one would have handed him over to the Romans to be killed. He would have been laughed at. 
He would have been dismissed out of hand. No Jew believes that a human being is God. Even nowadays, not even, you know, Jewish mothers when their children become doctors. <laughs> the most irreligious Jew after 2,000 years of exile believe in paganism? It, it turns the stomach. Nothing is more embedded in the Jew, and especially back then. Because back then, the very thing, the very thing that distinguished all Jews from all non-Jews was monotheism was belief in one God. There are no other monotheists in the entire world. Nowadays, it's 50% of the planet. So if he'd have taught that message, they would either have sent him to a psychiatrist <laughs> or they would have labeled him a pagan. Like all the other pagans in the world, they are hundreds of millions of them potentially, but no Jew would have given him the time of day. And even Christianity admits that no authority accepted his message. So you've painted very clearly the impossibility. What happened? You mean what happened to the message? How did the message take happened, off? Yeah. Well, the political message basically died with him. I mean, you know, there's a rebellion against Rome 40 years later, which destroyed the Besamikdash, but that's not his movement. His religious message, how did that take off as it's portrayed nowadays? Okay, we'll get there. We'll get there. Don't worry. But essentially, as I mentioned, the audience radically changes from the Jews to the non-Jews. It's the non-Jews who spread that message, as is clearly evidenced in the New Testament and in history. Christianity does not take off in his home country. It's rejected by the Jews. So, you know, there's no evidence that he ever came and said that he is the Messiah or that he is the Son of God. But there is a far better proof that his message was a religion against Rome, or, I mean, rebellion against Rome, rather, rather than rebellion against Orthodox Judaism. And that is the method of his execution. Political rebels were crucified. Why this method of execution? It's very public. The crucifix was raised so that it could be seen for miles around. And it was an extremely painful method of execution. It took a long time for them to die, and they died in agony. And it taught everyone a public lesson. Stand up to Rome, this is what happens to you. And, and this is critical, it was a well-known method of execution long before his execution. Many people were killed that way. There was a letter writer of the Times newspaper when the Mel Gibson film came out in 2004, which said, I have no problem with you portraying him on the cross. I have a problem with you portraying him as the only one to be crucified when at least 50,000 people suffered this fate under the Greeks and the Romans for political rebellions, not religious ones. Sparta, for instance. The, the Via Appia, the whole road on the way to Rome every, I can't remember, 100 metres, was another person crucified. It was a well-known method of execution for political rebels. That was the message that he must have brought. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. As you said, for religious reasons, like who, who would care? Who really? cared? Well, so he is killed on Pesach, I believe, and that took place in Yerushalayim. That's yes, so the Jews are eating Korban Pesach. There's a temple. It's around the year 30. 
And this period, the Sanhedrin decided no longer to carry out the death penalty, as the Mishnah in Sota tells us. So what do the sages do when they're confronted by a political upstart, a eroidef in halacha? They hand him over to the Romans because he is endangering the lives of thousands of Jews, because any rebellion would result in the Romans killing hundreds, if not thousands of people. I guess the only unfair bit is the of the accusation because it's true we handed him over the unfair bit is that the jews are now accused of killing a god which is deicide not homicide killing a person not even regicide killing a king and we will come back to this topic because it is very important in the relationship between jews and christians over the centuries okay so to clarify the timeline this is now year 30 yep. he's dead yep. what happens to his movement how did things take off? So, as we said, this is essentially a political movement for independence, which likely had moral teachings or rules. And when he dies, this group or sect, which according to their own admission, was never very large or successful. Do we know how many? No, because where would you have the evidence? You only know by description, but not, you know, the apostles, but that, that's not the, the full measure. So, this group is thrown into absolute turmoil. You know, now what? What do we do next? So his half-brother, James Shimon, takes over in Jerusalem, but there's a certain lack of direction. Just to mention in passing, by the way, his half-brother, James, that's a problem for most Christians who believe that not only was Mary a virgin when he was born, but she was what is called a perpetual virgin. It's a uh, medical quibble or a theological quibble. You can't, he can't have brothers if his mother's a virgin. But anyway, moving on, <laughs> moving on. This state of flux lasts for about 10 years until the most important event in Christian history and one of the most important event in world history, Paul or Shaul. Paul is the most important influence on Christianity according to the most orthodox of Christians. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, yet he never met Yeshu in his life, ever. In 37 CE, so this is maybe 10 years, 8 years, something like that, after cruci the crucifixion, he is on his way to Damascus. And Shaul has this vision that Yeshu appears to him and said, why do you persecute my people? So he becomes a strong Christian believer and he starts preaching. But, but he starts preaching to the pagans, the Gentiles. He moves to Syria. And that's where he writes his parts of the New Testament, outside of the land of Israel. And until this moment in time, there was no such thing as a Gentile Christian. If you were a Christian, you were a Jew plus. But Paul comes to these non-Jews saying, I've come with a new belief. And they say, you know, OK, what do we have to do? Bearing in mind that paganism at the time didn't involve any real sacrifice other than literal sacrifice. But, it, you know, it didn't involve you giving up anything. So he says, if you want to be Christian, it's very simple. All you have to do is believe in Yeshu. And Paul becomes very successful, far more successful in terms of numbers than the founder of Christianity. Now, you don't have to take my word for it. It's in the book of Acts, chapters 14, 15, and 16, and I quote, 
And certain men from Judah taught and said, Except he be circumcised after the manner of Moses, he cannot be saved. In other words, keep Torah mitzvahs and be Christian, you know, on your Sundays. And Paul says to them, forget it. So, therefore, Paul and Barnabas had no small disputation with them. Right, they, they don't get on because he says to them, you know, I can't convert the Gentiles if they have to be circumcised and they have to keep the laws of the Torah. So they bring him to Jerusalem for a council. This is chapter 15. And they came to Jerusalem, the, the apostles, the elders, and arose the sect of the Pharisees, which said it was needful to command. You must command these Gentiles to keep the laws of Moses. Right. Christianity is a Jewish religion. And Paul says, that's not what I do. So what's he have to convince them? Right. So they say to him, we met Yeshu. We heard from him personally. And he says, you met Yeshu, the man. I met Yeshu, the God. So I'm right. And then in chapter 16 of Acts, they write a letter. Greetings unto you who are Gentiles in Antioch. We've heard that you've been troubled, that you must be circumcised and keep the law. It seems good for us, uh, that which Paul is teaching, to be correct. And therefore, from then on, for the Gentiles, and this is what they write in the letter, it's written twice. If you want to be a Christian, what you have to do is abstain from idols, from blood of strangled animals, and from immorality. And if you do that, you're fine. All of the 613 commandments are now scrapped. As I say, don't take my word for it. Look in the book of Acts, which means the Torah has now just been deleted. Now move forward 30 years, because 30 years from now, the headquarters of the Christian church is not going to be in Shalim anymore because the temple would have been destroyed. Their headquarters is now in Syria. It's now under Gentile, non-Jewish read, pagan care, they are the majority and they take over Christianity. So the Christianity that we know today comes from Paul, not from Yeshu. And when you think about it, when Yeshu himself is challenged, he has a famous quote in Matthew chapter 5 where he says, think not that I have come to change one letter in the Torah, not one dot, not one uh, crossing of a T. And the person who does so, who changes anything, the slightest thing, will be the least in the kingdom of heaven. But Paul changes it all, even though Yeshua explicitly said otherwise in his lifetime. So all the quote-unquote Messiah of Christianity is down to one person, who claims that he was told this. There are 2.3 billion people following one deranged Meshuggah who says he was told this in a vision on the way to Damascus. And what that means is that all the Gospels are basically irrelevant. All the stories about Yeshua are irrelevant because what he taught is not what you have to do. We will talk more about the definition of a good Christian next time because that's important. But you understand how fundamental this is. Yeah, that's game changing. Absolutely. So after the destruction of the Second Temple, 
Their headquarters is in Antioch. The Druze no longer have the time to have input because of Roman aggression. And it's now in pagan hands. Now, where did the customs of Christianity come from? We haven't dealt with Christmas, Easter, baptism, all taken from other religions, as we will find out. And once again, do not rely on Jewish evidence for any of this. Look it up on Wikipedia, on Christian websites. It's all pagan, which, by the way, is halachically more problematic. A Christmas tree isn't necessarily a problem because it's Christian, but because it's pagan. It's avoidazar, it's idolatry. We'll see much more of this and the development of this man-made religion through the centuries. But I just have to close by mentioning again, be nice to people, whether they are Christians or Muslims or Jews, but Christianity or any religion other than Judaism is false. It's sheker and it's generally idolatrous for a Jew to believe in. There is no middle ground on belief. Wow. Do we have any rhyme or reason why this took off so incredibly? Absolutely. You will understand that it is what we would call Judaism light. We'll get there. Okay. Looking forward. That was fantastic intro. Rabbi Hirsch, thank you very much for that. Looking very forward for the next two episodes. I think once again, I know I've uh, sound like a broken record, but the amount of stuff I don't know just seems to <laughs> carries on amazing me. Um, so thank you for that. As usual, any reviews, questions, suggestions, please do send to podcasts at jd.org.uk, especially if you want to mention at the close of this series, Robbie Hirsch will try to address at least the best points. All the best. All the best.